My name is Annie Berry, and I'm a member of the Board of Women here at MPC. Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 14, verses 1 to 24. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, welcome again. My name is David, one of the assistant pastors, and it's great to have all of you joining us here in the sanctuary, those of you joining us in the fellowship hall, and those who may be watching on the live stream. If today is your first Sunday, you're joining us for a sermon series called Hungry for More. And we've been looking at several of the meals that Jesus has had with various people groups in the Gospel of Luke. And we're doing this because meals show us what God has done for us and what we are to do for others. And so today we're going to look at Jesus at a dinner party with a group of Pharisees. So let's pray one more time before we jump into this text together. Our Heavenly Father, as your word tells us, we know that nothing can be received apart from your Holy Spirit. So, Father, we come trusting in you that as your servants ask for bread, you will not give us stones. So, Father, feed us on your word today through the power of your Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been asked this question? If you could have dinner with one historical figure, who would it be and why? Well, I looked it up on Reddit this week, and uh, here are a few of those answers. One person said, Napoleon. I think he would be captivating in a conversation, and I heard he went to bed early at 9 p.m., and I do too. So Napoleon is who I'd like to have dinner with. Someone else said, Bill Gates. I'd love to pick his mind, and then added, or there's this cute girl in my history class who I wouldn't mind having dinner with as well. Someone else said, my great-grandfather. He served during World War II, and I would love to be able to meet him. And of course, someone else said, Jesus. They said, who is and what is up with that guy? I think he'd be interesting, I hope. (laughs) Well, what do you think it would be like to have dinner with Jesus? Interesting? Of course. Informative? Yes. Uncomfortable? Possibly. (laughs) Let's look at this text because it's quite an uncomfortable dinner party. And we're going to consider this text by seeing two questions, two parables, and then two applications. Yes, six points. Don't get worried. We'll move through them quickly. The first, two questions. And this is really the context in verses 1 through 6. The setting is a dinner party. The day is the Sabbath. Remember that this was a time set apart for rest and restoration. And the host, we are told, is a Pharisee. And not just any Pharisee, but one of the rulers of the Pharisees. He was prominent and successful. And his guest, aside from Jesus and this one person with dropsy, are very much like him. They are his relatives and his rich friends. But notice too in verse 1 it says all of these guests and the Pharisees were watching him very carefully. You see this dinner party was not to entertain Jesus but it was actually to entrap Jesus. Well how were they going to do that? Well remember the Pharisees thought 
you can go back in Luke 13, they thought that it was actually sinful to heal anyone on the Sabbath. And so it's likely that they brought this individual with dropsy, a condition where your body fills with fluid and eventually kills you. They brought this person with dropsy intentionally into this dinner party on a Sabbath to see what Jesus would do. And remember, they are adding laws to the Bible because nowhere in the Old Testament does it prohibit acts of mercy on a Sabbath. So that's the context. And then we see that Jesus responds with the first question. He asks it in verse 3. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And then, without blinking, Jesus healed the man And then he sent him on his way. And notice the response in verse 4. But they remained silent. Why? Why? Well, the answer is because in this moment, Jesus exposes their inability. Because it's not like they couldn't just heal on the Sabbath. They couldn't heal on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Sunday, right? Jesus is telling them, you don't have the ability to heal. So he's exposing their inability. At the same time, Jesus is revealing his ability and power to heal. And so the response is silence. And then Jesus asked his second question in verse 5. Now, which of you, if you have a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Now, I can just imagine somebody asking, well, you need to be more specific. Is it the son or the ox? Because I might be tempted to leave my son in there, uh, at least for the afternoon. But what is Jesus doing with this question? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't leave your son in the well if that happens. And that's the point of this question, right? Jesus is, again, exposing their hypocrisy. Because he's saying, think about it. If someone you love, like your son, or something that you value, like your ox, falls into a well and is drowning externally, then who would not pull them out and rescue them? And so in this moment, Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy And he is revealing his prodigious love. Jesus is making a statement to the Pharisees in this. He is saying, your rule-creating religion is getting in the way of your God-given mission. Your rule-relating religion is getting in the way of your God-given mission. And again, look at verse 6. What was their response? It's uncomfortable because it says, and they could not reply to these things. There we go. First two questions. See, I told you we'd move through this text quickly. The result is awkward silence. But Jesus, the great surgeon, doesn't let it go. He presses even deeper into the hearts of the guests. You see, they thought they were going to put Jesus on trial, but Jesus flips the script and puts them on trial by telling a parable. So now we come to the two parables, and we see that in verses 8 through 24. The first parable that Jesus tells is called the parable of the wedding feast. 
Now, what happens in this story? Well, there's a great party being thrown, and there's this wedding feast, and honor is at stake. And if you were to go to a great wedding feast, typically when you were going to eat, the tables would be arranged in a U-shape. And at the bridge of that U was the seat of honor. And that is where the host would sit. And then the highest seats of honor would be to the right and to the left of the host. And so Jesus has been watching them. And as they move from the first course into the next room, he sees all the guests at this dinner party rush to try to take the seats of honor. And so Jesus tells this parable about the great wedding banquet. And then he gives some practical advice. He says, Don't sit in the highest seat because you might be asked to move. And that would be embarrassing. But sit in the lowest seat. Because Jesus might promote you and you might be elevated. Now, that's good practical advice. It's good party etiquette. But it's way more than that. Jesus is exposing their hearts. He's exposing their desire for social climbing. He's exposing their arrogance and their vainness. Jesus is making a statement to the guests about what they love, about what they're hungry for, about what they crave, honor. And Jesus is telling the guests, don't overestimate your importance. You may not be as great as you think you are. So Jesus makes the guests Very uncomfortable. But he doesn't stop there. After cutting into the heart of the guest, he moves on to his next patient in the parable of the great banquet in verses 12 through 24. He now goes after the host. He says, oh, you see me talking to the guest over here. Let me turn my attention to you, the host. They may have overestimated their significance, but so did you. He says, your guest list is safe, it's self-serving, it's self-centered, and it's just plain wrong. He says, don't just invite your family and friends that can benefit you, but rather invite strangers and outcasts that can benefit from you. Now, is Jesus telling us that you can never have a party and you can't invite your family and your friends? That's not what Jesus is doing here. Remember, Jesus uses these expressions, these figures of speech to communicate a truth when he says, hey, if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off, right? Uh, no one can follow me unless he hates his mother or his father. Jesus is just saying, he's using an expression here to call out, don't let things of secondary importance become primary. And Jesus is using an idiomatic expression to communicate that his invite list needs to be a broader social class and include those without influence who can't pay you back. Jesus is making a statement to the host about what he loves, power. And Jesus says, don't be so calculating in your relationships. It is not about what you can get from others. Now, after Jesus exposes the hearts of not only the guest and the host, Jesus then talks about a future party. Look at verse 14. He says, you will be blessed 
at a party in the future and is called the resurrection of the just. And then you can just imagine now that Jesus has made this party very uncomfortable, there's probably some awkward silence. People are looking down, playing with their food, and then there's always the one. There's always the one that pipes up and tries to insert a little bit of humor who tries to lighten the mood. And so in verse 15, we have the person who says, yes, and blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Basically saying, can't we all agree in the future there will be a party and we will all be there? Hopefully one of his friends elbows him in the side and says, hey, be quiet, Tobias. But Jesus doesn't let it go, right? He says, okay, not so fast, my friend. Let me tell you another story. And he tells a story about a man who was planning this amazing party. And you see, in this party, the servants go out and invite all kinds of guests. And this was a traditional way of inviting someone to a party in the New Testament. You would go out, and it would be sort of a double invitation. You would invite people to come, and then based on how many people have responded, they are coming, then you would kill the appropriate amount of animals and prepare enough food. If two to four people said they were coming, you might kill a duck or a chicken. You know, if eight or 15 people said they were coming, you might slaughter a goat or a lamb. And if more than 15, it's time to kill the calf. We've got a lot of people coming. And so this servant goes out and these people RSVP and say, yeah, 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 we'll come. And so then the host prepares the meal. And then what happens? The excuses begin to pour in when the servant goes out and rings the dinner bell and says, all right, y'all come, the calf is ready. And then the excuses are ridiculous. Look there, somebody says, well, I bought a property unseen, a house today, and now I need to go check it out. And then someone else says, yeah, I bought five new vehicles and now I need to go take a test drive. Nobody does that. And then somebody else says, I got married a few weeks ago and I'm busy. Good for you. (laughs) The point is these excuses are ridiculous. And when the servant reports them back to the host, the host is angry and he will not be dissuaded and he tells the servant, find others. If they don't want to come, find other people that want to be at this lavish party. So the servant goes into the city and he brings back the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now, this is the New Testament quartet of the disproportionately vulnerable to injustice in their society. And they come and they join the feast And then the host looks at his table and says there's still empty seats. So he tells the servant, find more. And so now the servant doesn't just go out to the city, but it says the servant goes out into the country, goes out into the highways and the hedges and compels more to come. I love that word, compel. Why does the servant have to compel them to come? The servant has to compel them to come because they are humbled by the invitation. They look at the host who is inviting them to the table 
and they assume that they cannot possibly be on the guest list. They are aware of the glory of the host, the lavishness of the party, and their humble condition. And they go, who? Me? You couldn't possibly mean me. And the servant has to compel them and say, yes, the master means you. Come to the party. Come to the party. And then Jesus concludes this section in verse 24 by saying this. None of those people who were invited, who came up with excuses, shall taste my banquet. Those who made an excuse won't be welcome at the table of the master. They let second best things like property and homes and family and oxen and marriages keep them away from the very best. And this party is amazing, is it not? Because the Pharisees seek to expose Jesus. But as we can tell from this story, Jesus flips the script. He puts them in the dock and he exposes their hearts. So would dinner with Jesus be engaging? Yeah. Would it be informative? Yes. Uncomfortable? Possibly. (laughs) So how are we to apply this story, which brings us to the two applications? Well, let's put ourselves in this story. Let's put ourselves in this story first as the guest. Notice there are guests that accept the invitation And there are guests that refuse. Now, those that refuse the invitation are those that are not shocked to be on the guest list. Those who refuse the invitation are those who are not shocked to be on the guest list. Friends, this is the Christian message, what we call the gospel, or in other words, the good news. God has invited you and me and our friends and our family to a lavish banquet, one that is unequaled in glory. And this banquet has come at great cost to him that he had to sacrifice his own son, the eternal lamb, Jesus. That his son had to be pressed on the cross to provide the wine for us. This party, this future lavish feast, the invitation has gone out. The food has been prepared. And now the question is, are you going to come up with excuses for not attending the party? Are you shocked that you were even invited to the party? You see, the only requirement to attend the party is to acknowledge our unworthiness and to receive his unmerited and unremitted hospitality, what we call grace. You see, God is handing out invitations to those in the city, to those in the country. God is inviting addicts He is inviting prodigals. He is inviting losers 
Everyone is invited to the party, and the only barrier to the feast is not the invitation, but the acceptance of the invitation. The first question that we have to think about today is this. Have we accepted the master's invitation to this future and glorious, lavish banquet? And are you shocked that you received an invite? So how we apply this, we first put ourselves in the story as the guest. But then the second way that I want you to apply it today is to put yourselves in the place of the servant. You see, those who live in the master's house are those who have tasted grace. And those who are surprised who made the list and shocked that Jesus wants us, we then become his servants to extend grace. The servants are sent by the master to compel others to attend the great banquet. Friends, this is the Christian method, what we call missions. Extending grace because we are those who have tasted grace. God sends us to compel others to accept his hospitality to the great banquet. This is what Romans 15, 7 says. Therefore, welcome one another as what? As Christ has welcomed you. People who have experienced grace are compelled to share grace. Hospitality comes to life from those who are shocked by the hospitality of Jesus. And we sing that song, Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God. Jesus sought me when I was a stranger. When you understand that you were a stranger, invited to the feast, then that becomes the fuel that energizes you to extend grace and invite others to the feast. It's why Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another, and I love what he adds at the end of this verse, without complaint. (laughs) Because he knows it's hard and he knows we're gonna complain. There's a command, be hospitable, and yeah, I know you're gonna complain, so do it without complaining. Friends, the second question of application is this. Will we extend the invitation of hospitality to those strangers who are around us? And I'll be honest, if our church is not a place for welcoming strangers, then let's close the doors. Then let's close the doors. If our church is not a place for welcoming strangers, then let's close the doors. Praise God that we have five services now and that people are coming and experiencing grace. Praise God for that. And it's hard. And it's easy to complain. They're sitting in my seat. I can't believe I got a park at Cooper. It's easy to complain. But friends, if we are shocked that we have been invited to the feast, then we will be willing to be uncomfortable to extend that invitation to others. Sometimes the message of a text is very simple. It's this. Jesus is hosting a big party for everyone, and he wants us to bring as many as possible. 
Let me wrap up with this. Uh, I was reading a story this week that absolutely wrecked me. It absolutely wrecked me. I was a little embarrassed. I'm sitting in my office and I read this story and I just start weeping. And it comes from this book. Some of you have read it. I know some of you uh, recently went to um, a seminar by Rosaria Butterfield. And this is her latest book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And there's one chapter about hospitality uh, as an extent, uh, uh, you know, that plays out in the form of foster care. Uh, and adoption. And she tells a story of when their family was going to meet uh, the 16-year-old boy who they were going to adopt for the first time. He'd been living in this therapeutic group home, and so Rosaria takes her husband Kent and their two children, Mary age three and Knox age six, to go and to meet this 16-year-old boy for the first time a stranger, as she describes him, living in the best that the state could provide, but yet this home still felt more like a prison than a home because in this home, it had no doors on the bedrooms. In this home, they had to wear uh, monitoring uh, ankle bracelets. In this home, there was very little freedom. And in the kitchen, on the walls, there were goals for each of the children, including their tasks for the day. It also listed out what their most effective uh, or most likely Um, course of action could be for the child. Reunification with the birth family, adoption, or permanent foster care. And this is what Rosaria writes. She said, these goals depend on either people who have already shown themselves to be undependable or strangers whose prospects are suspicious at best. Reunification with birth parents and adoption are such high-risk endeavors. So few teenagers realize either endpoint that it feels hopeless to hope, not knowing if the next day will be a new nightmare or a rerun of an old nightmare. And Rosaria acknowledges that these homes are better than ending up in a prison or dead, but she wants more for them. And as they prepare to meet Michael, their new 16-year-old son, Knox, their six-year-old, has brought a present, his most prized possession. And what's the most prized possession of this six-year-old? It's his favorite purple dinosaur with one foot that's been chewed off by the family dog. And so when Michael comes out to meet his family for the first time, Rosaria says it's evident he's full of fear. He locks eyes with her and then he looks down and sees Knox and Mary, and he gets down on one knee and knocks, runs up to him, and gives him this one-footed purple dinosaur. And Mary hugs him. And in that moment, fear and shame moves to acceptance and family. Rosaria writes, this now looks like a family reunion, except that we are all strangers. Friends, the Greek word for hospitality, philoxenos, literally means this, love of the stranger. Now, not all of us are called to foster children, but all of us are called 
to hospitality. Hospitality always has and always will be the most effective form of Christian mission. What does it look like for you and me? It's very simple. Kids, as you're thinking about going back to school this fall, do you know what Christian hospitality looks like? It looks like welcoming the new kid to sit at your lunch table. Students going to high school or college, what does hospitality look like for you? It means when your friends are belittling someone else who's different from you, you stand up for them. Adults, what does hospitality look like for you and me? There's a broad range of things, right? We began this series of thinking about hospitality in the context of our home. Who will we invite over to dinner? You know what? And it's great if you can throw a lavish party. But you know what hospitality looks like? Sometimes it's just offering your favorite purple one-footed dinosaur when all you have is rice and beans in a small apartment and there's dirty dishes in the sink. It's okay. Invite people over. Or what does hospitality look like at work? Look for opportunities to esteem coworkers. Help them navigate a new transition instead of worrying about your own interest and in getting ahead. What does hospitality look like in this church? At the end of this service, when you stand up and you're talking to your friends, if you see someone you don't know, go and speak to them. It's radical, right? <laughs> or if you're all in, then we still need more host families for our fellows, welcome a 23-year-old into your home for nine months. That's some incredible hospitality. Host a community group if you're somewhere in the middle. Now, what does it look like for hospitality in your community? If you don't know, check out the McLean Weekly this week. Start by giving supplies to the Lamb Center or volunteer with English as a second language at MPC. Welcome people from over 30 different countries by simply teaching them something that you already know better than me, English. <laughs> there are an endless number of ways to extend hospitality. Friends, we are strangers who have been welcomed. And when we understand this, then we will be those who welcome strangers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we can receive nothing but what you give. And now we acknowledge that we can do nothing apart from you. We are unable to even stand a moment apart from you. So may your grace abound and your promises be accomplished in us and through us. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.